All right, we're beginning a new series, kicking off God of the Underdogs, which, by the way, we are uh, teaming this up with community groups that we are launching this week. And so at the Discover Party, you'll have an opportunity to sign up for those community groups. We have four opportunities that will be available to you. We have a Monday night group, we have a Tuesday night group, we have a Wednesday night group, and we have a Friday night group, okay? So you should be able to make all of those. And so uh, three of those are at homes, and then the Wednesday night group is here at the church. Uh, so we have youth that goes on on Wednesday nights at 645. So bring your young person, drop them off, and then in the kids' room uh, will be that small group. So that's a great opportunity for you to do that. Uh, just to let you know, there won't be little kid child care here uh, during that time, uh, but at all the houses, kids are welcome, so that's all good. So, all right? Good? All right, so you can sign up for those at the Discover Party, so you have to come now to the Discover Party to join a community group. Not really, but we would love for you to join us. But we are, uh, this new series, God of the Underdogs, uh, is something that like really resonates with me uh, because I love a good underdog story. How many of you like underdog stories, right? I mean, Look at that, Rudy. Man, there it is. Rudy Rudiger, right? But let me give you some examples. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to give kudos to our media person one way or the other here. But if we have pictures, that's going to be awesome. And we do. Look at this. I just love our media team. Sounding me. Can you all give it up for those guys? The unsung heroes, week in and week out, making things happen. And so, uh, but here are several examples of, of some of the biggest underdog stories. And obviously, when we think of an underdog, most of us think of sports, right? Because, I mean, in sports, that's where we find underdogs and stuff like that. Uh, but um, how many of y'all remember Buster Douglas? Anybody remember Buster Douglas? I mean, come on. I mean, look, it was in 1990. Some of y'all weren't even born then. But, hey, look, it's all good. But look at this. Look at this shot right here. That's Buster Douglas. Does anybody know who the guy is that's getting knocked out? Tyson. Mike Tyson in 1990. Listen, Mike Tyson was like thought to be unbeatable. I mean, like he was the man. I mean, like Mike Tyson, he could throw a punch and you were done. But Buster Douglas came out of nowhere. Can you, now, let me just say this. Buster Douglas, okay, was a huge underdog. In fact, it was a 42 to 1 shot that Buster Douglas would win this fight. 42 to 1. You know, some of those people that betted on Buster Douglas were really happy that night in Las Vegas, let me just tell you. But listen, he was a huge underdog, but Buster Douglas, he came through and he won. How about this one? Appalachian State. Look at this. This was in 2003. Any college football fans? This is when Appalachian State, now they're Division I now, but back in 03 they were Division II. And they were playing Michigan. And Michigan was the number five team in the nation. In fact, they were looked at as a favorite to possibly compete for the national championship. And this was the first game of the season. And they played Appalachian State. And this was supposed to give one of, be one of those gimme games, you know, like some of these teams, like Alabama, they play like these total non-teams in the beginning of the season. Not LSU. We play teams like Texas. Our non-conference is just unbelievable. But if you're an Alabama fan... Y'all need some heart checks. Y'all struggled against Tennessee yesterday, by the way. I'm just trusting that some of my Alabama friends are watching this on Facebook Live. And so, like, I just want like, I have a lot of friends. I lived in Alabama for several years, so I got a lot of, a lot of friends 
that live in Alabama. And so I just want to say, LSU is coming for you this year, okay? So it's coming. It's coming. And so maybe I'm a little, uh, a little too confident, but hey, it's okay. I'm good. But Appalachian State did the unthinkable and beat the number five Michigan team back in 2003. Now, this is, the next one is probably the greatest underdog story of all time. At least I think so. All right, in 1980, the miracle on ice took place, okay? And look, this was Team USA, who was a bunch of amateurs because they didn't, they, like, like it was college hockey players, amateur hockey players from the United States that came together. They played on different teams. They never played together. They had to learn how to play together. And they played this team, the Soviet Union. For those of you that don't know what that is, that was what Russia was before you know what I'm saying? So anyways, I'm just giving y'all a little, hey, listen, y'all probably know more about that than we do. So I'm just like, listen, y'all are in school right now and it's all good. But uh, so the Soviet Union was looked at as like the unbeatable team in hockey. They, uh, it, it was just one of those moments and, and they made a movie about it and it's a great movie. But Team USA pulled off an amazing upset of the Soviet Union, winning the game four to three. Uh, to win the gold medal and earn it, or before the gold medal match and earning themselves a place in history. And the game inspired what is now one of the most recognizable broadcast calls in history as Al Michaels screamed that he did, in fact, believe in miracles. That's what he said. When it happened, that's what he said. You know, a little piece in all of us want an underdog to win. I mean, when you hear about that underdog when you hear about that, that, that sporting event and they start touting it as David versus Goliath and all of this, and you just, you just you pull for that underdog. You just want to see them win because it, it, I, I think it's a, a, a piece of the, of the reason why we feel this way is because it, 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 it gives us hope that, that the impossible is possible, right? I mean, that's what an underdog does. It gives us hope that the impossible is possible. But I also believe that the reason that we want underdogs to win is because deep down inside we all recognize that we're underdogs ourselves. <laughs> we feel like we're an underdog. Deep down, we are aware of our humanity and we feel in some way that we don't measure up. No matter where we've come from or how many accolades that we've received in our lives, each one of us still sees ourselves as an underdog. Now, I believe all of us in certain days or maybe certain environments or certain situations, we feel like we are not qualified to live the life we're living or to do the thing we're doing. I mean, have you ever had that moment in your life where you're sitting there doing something and it's like you've been the one that's been chosen, you've been the one that's in that job, and you get, some, you get to a place where you feel like I'm not qualified to do what I'm doing. It's that feeling of being an underdog. You know, maybe when you look in the mirror, you see a number of excuses of why you couldn't or shouldn't be the one who accomplishes something great. Perhaps you see all the reasons why somebody else is more qualified or more deserving. I can tell you, there's, if I could just be completely upfront and honest and transparent before you, I struggle with this big time. And I don't mean to say this to, to get people to feel a certain way. I, I just, I struggle with feeling qualified. There's a lot of times where I find myself leading 
this church and, and, and doing what God's called me to do, and I struggle with feeling like, God, I'm not the right one. Why am I the one? I don't want to be the one. Have you ever been there? I just don't want to be. At times in my life, I don't want to be because I feel like, man, there's somebody else that could do a better job. And I'm not saying that to, to get a reaction. I'm saying that because I feel like we all struggle with that. We all struggle with that. But you know what? I want to encourage you today that it's time for us to rise up. It's time for us to face our underdog excuses head on and then get moving full speed in the direction of our dreams and our destinies. I believe this is a message not for us as individuals, but for us as a church as well. I mean, our church could be looked at as a little bit of an underdog as well in our community. You know, I, I, there's plenty of, of, of great people in our community that have stepped up to the plate that have planted churches. And guess what? Some of them have been successful and some of them not so successful. You know, it, it's, it's like, you know, sometimes you get this idea like, man, God's given us a dream and, and, a, and a heart for this community and you want to do something great. But then you feel like, man, there's, but there's other places out there that can do this much better than we can. Because that's what, the, that, that's what plays in our minds. And then God has to remind you and remind me that, no, I've placed you here for such a time as this because you have a unique calling. You have a unique purpose. You have a unique destiny. That's what God thinks about you as an individual. You have a unique purpose, a unique calling, a unique destiny. There's nobody else that can do what you were put on this planet to do. Every person God chose to use in a great way in the Bible was an underdog. Every person God used had a justifiable excuse for why he or she couldn't or shouldn't be used by God to accomplish great things. Can I tell you this this morning, that I believe you can change your world. I need you to listen to me. I need you to place your eyes on my eyeballs as I scan this room. I believe that you can change your world. You might be an underdog, but I believe in you. God believes in you. God wants to use you as he used the greatest influencers in the Bible. You're an underdog, but guess what? So were the people that we read about in Scripture, but they did not let it stop them. They were individuals who overcame their excuses. They served the God of the underdogs, and they changed their world. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be taking a look at certain ones of these in the Bible that were underdogs and looking at what could possibly be their excuse to prevent them from doing what it was that God was calling them to do. And the reason that I feel like this is going to be so powerful is because I believe that I wrestle with these excuses, that you wrestle with these excuses, but it's time that we put an end and that we do rise up and that we do become who God has created us to be. Because we serve a God of the underdogs. One who is rooting for you. He's rooting for me. He's rooting for us. So here's the underdog excuse number one. I'm not qualified enough. In Acts chapter 13, verses 21 through 22, it says this, Then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin who reigned for 40 years. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David was one 
that felt or could have that feeling, could have that excuse, I'm not qualified enough. But yet as we read in Acts, he was the one that God chose. He was the one that God spoke of in saying, he, I, he was a man after my own heart. He realized David was the only one that was labeled that way in Scripture. A man after God's own heart. He's the one that we get all the Psalms from, or most of the Psalms from. And he pours his heart out. You, can, you, get, you get just a, a, an unfiltered glimpse at who David was. Who that man really was. And what he was feeling on the inside at times. You could read some of the Psalms and, and come away with, man, he didn't stand a chance. You come away with other Psalms and you think, man, this guy was on the top of the world. David was an underdog. And he could have had the excuse, I'm not qualified enough. I know for Christina and I, you know, we've had quite the journey since we've been married. We've been married for 13 years. And it's been quite the journey to get to where we are right now. There were a lot of times where we, chose, where we wanted to give up. We could have very easily have chosen to give up. There were times where we just wanted to walk away and just go live a uh, quote-unquote normal life. But you know what? There are times where it didn't look pretty. There were times where doors were getting closed in our face. Doors that we thought should have stayed open but closed anyway. And then I remember we got into a room with a couple of guys who we well respect and ones that move in the gifting of, uh, uh, of, of prophecy. And so th we, we were in a room with them and they began to speak over us. And I remember one of the things that they said was is that God is going to, 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 to put a gift of faith inside of you. Now, we all have faith, right? Would you agree with me on that, that we all have faith? But there's a difference between having faith and then having the gift of faith. And so when he spoke this, it was kind of one of those moments where it was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Like, it's a feel-good in the moment because you're like, oh, a gift of faith. Like, anybody likes a gift, right? Of course, you just don't really understand. Anybody ever get a gift that you thought you were going to enjoy, and then when you got it, you were like, man, this is a horrible gift. Now, not that I think faith is a horrible gift, but I'm just saying, like, the process to attain the gift of faith is not necessarily what you would want to sign up for because we were put into numerous situations where God was just giving us a gift of faith. And I can say this, that it's definitely not us that pushed through. It was that gift of faith that was being produced inside of us that pushed us through. I also remember... Uh, the other guy that was in the room, he said, you know, I feel like your life is represented this way. Like you're the kid who's out in the backyard with a baseball bat and a ball, and you keep throwing the ball up, and when you swing, you miss. But there's a time that's coming where you're going to throw the ball up, and you're going to connect, and you're going to hit it out of the park. Well, let me tell you, I don't feel like we've hit it out of the park yet. I'm talking about me personally us as a couple. I don't feel like we've hit it out of the park yet. I feel like we've thrown the ball up that we're going to hit out of the park, but we haven't, we, like we're in the process of swinging the bat, but we haven't connected with the ball yet. Does that make sense? Because I do feel like we're on path for that to happen. I just don't feel like it's happened yet. But how many times that word was spoken to us over 10 years ago. It was very early on in our marriage. And I can't help but think that God placed that there 
so that it could be the one thing that I could lean on in times where things didn't necessarily go the right way. Times where I felt like the biggest underdog. The times where I didn't feel qualified. The times where I felt like there was somebody better suited for the position. Better times when I felt like, man, there is no reason why I should be doing what I'm doing. Because I kept feeling like I was throwing the ball up and missing. But can I tell you that some of you might feel the same way this morning. Like, man, I've thrown that ball up so many times, I don't even care to throw it one more time. Can I tell you, you might just be one throw of the baseball away from connecting to hitting it out of the park. Every one of us have had moments of feeling unqualified. The moment when we looked at what was ahead or needed in a situation and we thought, surely I'm not the one God would want to use right now. Not this time, not this instant, not me. You see, human beings in every period of history have felt that way, even in Bible times. So let's talk about David, the underdog. You see, we have the privilege of seeing David's life in its completion, right? We, we, we're, we're still a work in progress. If you're breathing, you're still a work in progress. And I hope you're all breathing right now. But here's the thing. We have the privilege of seeing David's complete life. And so when we see his complete life, we see a guy who was a world changer. Now, he wasn't perfect by any stretch. In fact, he screwed up a lot. I mean, this was the guy who had an affair and, oh, by the way, killed the husband, had the husband killed of the lady that he had the affair with. Like, like he, he, he just, he was a screw-up at times. He, he had his own kids that didn't like him and tried to overthrow him. I mean, he would hide from his kids. I mean, like, well, that's not far from a stretch. I hide from my kids, too, from time to time. <laughs> but you see, somehow, in the midst of multiple messes, he seemed to get himself into God still used him. He was still a man after God's own heart. You see, King David, he changed the world. He took a nation, the nation of Israel, in a whole new direction, and he changed the face of the world from that time on. Jesus was a descendant of David. How cool is that? But here's the thing about David. Long before he changed the world, led his nation in a new direction and became Jesus' ancestor, he was a whole lot of nothing special. He was a whole lot of nothing special. You see, when we first meet David, he's anything but a world changer and a king. When we first meet David, he is an underdog. Now, to set this story up for you, we've got we to gotta understand, remember when we read Acts, there was a first king, which was Saul. So let's think about who Saul was. We read about Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 20 through 24, and it says this, So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel before the Lord, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen by Lot. Now let me pause here, because here's the thing about this time in history, is that the people of Israel were actually led by God. God was their king. I mean, now let's think about this for a minute. God spoke in, in, to this nation, gave them direction, gave them what they, what, what they needed to do, and yet they got to this point where they were like, enough of this. You see, God chose Israel to be a unique and holy nation. Unique means not like everybody else, right? It means special. And that's exactly what God chose Israel to be. But here's the thing. 
Israel gets to this place where they say, we don't want to be unique anymore. We want to be like everybody else. We want a king. All these other nations that are around us have kings. We want a king. Samuel's like, uh, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't want that. Because if, you're, if you get a king here on earth, they're going to draft your sons into the army. You're going you're gonna to experience so many things that you would have never experienced. But listen, you don't want to do this. People said, I don't care. We want it. We want to be like all the other nations. And so, you know what? God finally just relented and said, okay, have it your way. Give, here's your king. And so that's where we find ourselves. So Benjamin was chosen by Lot. Then he brought each family of the tribe of Benjamin before the Lord. And the family of the Matrites was chosen. And finally Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared. Now here's what's funny about that. Is that Saul already knew what was going to happen. Samuel had already gone and anointed Saul. We read about that earlier in the book of Samuel, of 1 Samuel. And so, like, don't you think that if you're anointed king that you would just want to strut your stuff? That you would want to, yes, I'm the king. Any wrestling fans out there? You look like Ric Flair coming down the middle aisle. Woo! With the, with the robe, sparkles, bedazzled, whatever you want to call it. But look, here's the thing. So, but that's not what Saul did. So they asked the Lord, this is so funny to me. I mean, let's, let's really think about this for a minute. The nation of Israel has asked for a king. Samuel's warned them, you don't want one. They said, yes, we do. Give us one anyway. Samuel goes and anoints Saul. Then they're like, okay, where's the king? We can't find him. And then what do they do? They ask the Lord. Like, I'm like, are you serious? You're, you, you just told the Lord you don't want him to be your king. You just told the Lord you don't want anything to do with him. Now your earthly king doesn't even want to step forward. He doesn't want to be the king, obviously. And then what do you do? Your first thing is, okay, God, where is he? It's just, it's just funny. And the Lord replied, he's hiding among the baggage. The baggage. The royal baggage. You see, when we do things our way, when we do things our way, we bring baggage with us. And it keeps us from being seen. It keeps us from stepping into what we are called to do because we know that when we're in our own strength, doing it in our own way, we don't have the ability to step forward. So, he's hiding in the baggage. So they found him and brought him out. And he stood head and shoulders above anyone else. Now, Saul looked apart, right? I mean, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. You know what that meant? That meant this guy, he was a stud. He was a stud. Let's just call it what it is. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. Ever heard that statement? That little statement? Man, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. Just means he... He, 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 he's, he's, he exceeds all the expectations of everybody else. He stands head and shoulders above everybody else. And then verse 24, and then Samuel said to all the people, this is the man the Lord has chosen as your king. 
No one in Israel is like him. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Saul was the guy who liked to ride the fence. He was a guy who did things God's way for a time. And then he'd do things his way for a time. And eventually Saul chose his own way over God's way. And when that started to happen, God's patience with Saul was done. And God decided to go, go into a new direction and he would choose a new leader for his people. Well, let's, let's take that series of events into our present day today. The world we now live in has chosen its own way over God's way. And consequently, it has lost its way. That was the case in ancient Israel with Saul, and that is the case today. But just as God stepped in to change a nation's course, I believe that God is stepping in once again to our world to change its course. God is doing a new thing in our world today. And in the same way God moved in a new direction after Saul, I believe God wants to move in a new direction today. You know, if you turn on the news, it's like, man, we just live in a godless nation. We live in a world that's torn apart by war. We live in a world that is just pitted against each other, depending on what your beliefs are, both in a religious uh, 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 circle, in a political circle. I mean, like, like, there's so much disunity in our world today. And, and when people look at that that don't have a relationship with Jesus, they look at it and go, man, there's no hope. And then unfortunately, when they look at the church, the church isn't really any better. I mean, I'm talking about the church in general. Because when people look at the church, they think they are, have their own agenda. They're only out for this. They're only out for that. They just want this. They just want that. Then you got, like, it's, it's, just, it's just amazing. You have people within the body of Christ that argue with one another over things that are so senseless and so stupid and such a waste of time. Like, listen, if we can come to the table and agree that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that the only way to be saved is by accepting Him as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by believing that He came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, and rose on the third day, well, then who cares about the rest of it? Let's join together and let's bring the hope of Jesus into this world. Because you might say, well, whoa, 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 you can't make a statement like that. Well, you know what Jesus told me? Jesus said, love me with everything inside of you and then love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do those two things, you got everything covered. So when we think about why we d disagree on all these different things, well, guess what? You need to check your relationship with Jesus. You know what? You need to check how you view your neighbor. Because if you got a problem with somebody else, and now I'm not saying it's not, a, I'm not like we can't disagree. And, and, and because here's the thing. Yeah, you're going to come across people that don't believe in what we believe in. Right? We can't just say, oh, well, I agree with what you're saying just so we can keep harmony here. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying within the body of Christ. People need to see hope. People need to see the underdogs rise up. And to become what David was to his world and change their world. Can I tell you this? You have permission to believe God wants to use you. Not that you really need my permission, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. You have permission to believe that God wants to use you. 
What if God placed his hand on a bunch of underdogs like you and me? Think of the possibilities. Imagine what could happen, right? Imagine the problems that we could solve. Imagine the hope that we could present to people. Imagine the difference that we can make if we believed that God can use us, underdogs, and put his hand on us. You see, because God's not looking for the obvious choice. He's looking for you. Let me say that again. God's not looking for the obvious choice. He's looking for you. Now, remember how I said God chose kings when the people asked for a king? Right? The people asked for a king. Then the prophet would come and they would anoint the person as king. So, I told you Samuel anointed Saul as king. As soon as God's patience ran thin with Saul and he decided to go a different direction, he sought David out through the prophet Samuel. And when Samuel came, the whole deal was is he identified him and then poured oil all over him. So that was, that was what happened. Now, think about this. God doesn't, God's not looking for the obvious choice. He's looking for you. In 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13, I'm going to read this in its entirety. It says this, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked, do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Because you see, Eliab was the obvious choice. He looked the part. He probably could have been said that he was head and shoulders out of all the sons. Just like Saul was head and shoulders over everyone else. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord does not see things the way that you see them. See, because the way you see yourself is not the way that God sees yourself. Because remember when I said we look in the mirror, maybe we have excuse after excuse after excuse. When God looks at you, He doesn't see an excuse. He sees possibility after possibility after possibility. He sees potential after potential after potential. He sees purpose, destiny. He sees something so powerful. Why? Because He created you. He formed you. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He had every day of your life planned out. He knows exactly what you were created for. 
Then in verse 8, Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. Now this is Jesse saying, Well, I mean, Eliab would have been my first choice too. But let me... I got a lot of sons, by the way. So here's the next one. He surely has to be the one. Right? He surely has to... I mean, Adinadab. I mean, just check that name out alone. I mean, that just says king all over it. But I mean... Like, he was in the weight room this morning. So, I mean, he's got, he, he's got the muscles flexing. He got the spray tan done this morning. Right? We just went to the store and we bought him a new, a new, a new suit. We even started having a crown made for him, Samuel. I mean, this, I mean look at him. He just he looks awesome. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. So next, Jesse summoned Shemiah. I don't know if that's how you spell it. I mean, pronounce it, but that's how we're going to do it today. Shemiah. I mean, if Ben-Abedab didn't sound kingly enough, how about this guy's name? I don't know where they got their names from, but listen, they're great. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Now, can we pause right there for a minute and think about this for a minute? If you're Samuel, you've got to be like thinking, God, are you playing some kind of cruel joke on me? Because we just went down the whole roll call and none of these guys are it. And then look at what happens next. Verse 11, then Samuel asked. um, This is like one of those things that you would label as a major awkward moment. Where you go up to Jesse and say, Jesse, I know you got a lot of kids. I mean, seven's a lot. I mean, good Lord, I have three, and I can't even keep up with all three of them. I can't imagine having seven. But he actually had eight. Because one didn't even make it to the roll call. My friend right here has a lot of blessing over her life. Because she's got a lot of kids. I'm just saying. But anyways, so are these all the sons you have? That would be like, Taylor, that would be like me coming up. Like, we, I've met all your kids. And you say, this is all of them. And then I've got to come up to you, Tamara, and I've got to say, are, are you sure you're not missing one? Like, like, like are these all your kids? Because I... I'm, I'm pretty sure the Lord's telling me you got another one. Is there something you didn't tell me? You know what I'm saying? I mean, can you imagine how awkward this moment must be? And Jesse replied, they're still the youngest. But he's out in the fields watching the sheeps. Yeah, the sheeps. The sheeps and the goats. You know, here in verse 11, what we realize is that Jesse, David's father, didn't think David mattered. Thought he was unqualified. He didn't see or believe in David's potential. He said he's fine where he's at. He's in his place. I know there's some of you in this place today 
that you know the kind of pain someone's unbelief can cause. And if that's you this morning, you need to hear this. God knows who you are, where you are, and when you are. You are not a mistake. You are chosen of God to break the curse of unbelief that is on you. You see, you have permission to break the curse and begin anew today. If somebody has spoken unbelief over you, has spoken to you and said you don't have potential, you don't measure up, you're not qualified, you don't matter, guess what? Today is a new day. And you have permission to break that curse and to begin anew today. Now look at what it says. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down until he arrives. You see, the moment that Samuel realized David's existence, and before he even laid eyes on David, he already knew David was the one. You know what? Before David even entered the room, you know what Samuel said? We're not sitting down until we have dinner. That's what he said. We will not sit down and eat until he arrives. You know what this tells me? The moment that Samuel learned of David's existence, he began treating him as royalty. You see, one leader in David's life saw his potential and one did not. And that belief made all the difference. There was only one person in that room when David entered in that believed in who David was called to be. And that was Samuel. And Samuel said, we're not sitting down. Because we're in the presence of royalty. The king just walked through the door. We will not sit down. We will honor him. We will respect him. We will not sit down until we are eating. Because we are in the presence of royalty. You see, all the wrong stuff plus God's hand of anointing equals the right person for the job. All the wrong stuff that David's father Jesse thought about David, plus God's hand of anointing that Samuel saw equals the right person for the job. So Jesse sent for him. Now he was dark and handsome. I'm like thinking to myself, well, what is Jesse not seeing? Like he's tall, dark, and handsome. I mean, well, I don't know if he's tall, but he's dark and handsome. He even says he's got beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. You see, God is calling us, the underdogs, to rise up with the message of hope in Jesus that has the power to change the world. You see, David could have used the excuse, I'm not qualified enough, because he had a father who didn't see his potential. He could have chose to side with his dad. Think about this, because because you you think, oh, well, I mean, but the prophet Samuel was there, and he believed in him, so that's good, right? Well, listen, my thing is, is like David lived with his father every day. Samuel has never met David before. Samuel has just laid eyes on him for the first time and says that he's the king. Now, let me ask you, if you're in a room... And there's three people in the room. It's you, one of your parents, and then somebody that has no clue who you are until just now. 
And your parent says, "Uh uh-uh, you ain't going to cut it. You don't have any potential. You're not going to make it. And the other person is sitting there going, oh, man, goodness, you are just, you were chosen. You're awesome. You're going to do this. Who would you believe? I mean, let's be real and honest with ourselves. We would believe that person that has been in our lives from day one. But here's the thing. We cannot choose to believe in what somebody who they may know us, they might be related to us, they speak that over our lives. But we've got to come into tune with what God sees and His identity that He has for us. You see, David took a risk. He took a leap of faith. He decided that I'm not going to live under the excuse that I'm not qualified enough. I'm going to live in the way that God sees me and not the way that my earthly father sees me. You see, because Samuel was just a representation of God speaking. And so when he heard Samuel, he knew that Samuel was a prophet. So he respected the position of Samuel, and he respected what came out of his mouth enough to say, well, if this is what God thinks about me, then this is what I'm going to think about myself. And we've got to come to that point in our own lives that if this is what God sees, if this is what God believes, then that's what I have to see. That's what I have to believe. Now, nobody else might see it, but you have to walk in that. And then, it's like, man, this is, how, this is, how, this is the way that God works. God speaks identity and then brings David right into an opportunity to see if it's stuck or not. See, sometimes what we do is we have this moment with God where we feel good about ourselves because He has spoken something into our lives and then when we walk out of the door, we go face a Goliath and then we feel like, oh man, I'm not qualified. Oh man, God, God, you were wrong. You just didn't understand. I mean, like, how in the world can you say that about me and then as soon as I walk out the door, there's Goliath standing at me. Because that's exactly what happened to David. David gets anointed king and the next, like virtually almost the next day, he's standing before Goliath. Now let's read a little bit of this story. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 17 through 18, it says, One day Jesse said to David, Take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain and see how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. You know what? Jesse still doesn't believe in him. I mean, how can you send a king? Now, if you work for this company, don't take this the wrong way. On a waiter run. You see what I'm saying? Like, how are you going to send King David on a waiter run? Like, there's, like, you, you are basically telling David, I don't care what Samuel said. What I believe is what I believe, and you're not qualified. But you know what? David had such a humbleness about him. And such a, 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 this, this confidence in who God had called him to be, that if God had spoken this to me, it'll come in its time. When it's supposed to happen, it's going to happen. 
because I'm going to choose what God says about me, and I'll walk confidently in that until the day he wants to expose that to everybody else. But I'm not going to believe anybody else's report. Then you drop down when David gets there, because David honored his father. He did what he did. He took the sack lunches to his brothers, and then look at what happens down in verses 26 through 28. David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is the reward for killing him, which was you're not going to pay taxes for the rest of your life. I mean, that's just enough for some of y'all to go face Goliath. And then you get to marry one of Saul's daughters. I mean, who doesn't want to marry a, 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 a princess? I mean, this sounds like it's too good to be true. But it says this in verse 28, But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. You see, Eliab was the one who was looked over the first time. He was the one that when he heard Samuel was coming and then he figured out what he was coming for, he thought, man, there is no way he cannot choose me. I am the perfect candidate. And when he talks about David being prideful and deceitful, he's just so disgusted that that's what he deals with that he's got to push that on somebody else. And he pushes that on to his brother. And so his brother doesn't believe in who God has called him to be. And yet David didn't let it stop him. Then in verse 31, then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. So now his own king doesn't believe in him either. And this is interesting to me because, I mean, like, I can't imagine if you go back and you read, obviously David and Saul have already had some kind of uh, 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 working together uh, because at this time the Spirit of God had already left Saul. And because of that, now he was being tormented. And now over his torment, they got David in who could play the harp, would go in and play the harp for King Saul to calm him down. This is just bizarre to me. Because you got a guy who knows he's the real king serving the, the, the king that has already been removed in a spiritual sense. He's still there in a physical sense. So Saul is sitting on an earthly throne. David is sitting with the anointing of God over his life. And you got these two that are interwoven. And David... He's just remaining humble, waiting for his time. And in verse 34, it says, But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. And when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it again to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Here's the thing about David. David lived in his private life what he lived in his public life. And that's the key. You can't be one way in front of everybody else and then be somebody else 
when the doors are closed and nobody else is looking. David could walk in the confidence because he spent time with the Lord in private, in his own uh, uh, spiritual closet, if you will. He was in there. He was, he was experiencing God move in ways that nobody else saw. So he was prepared for the moment. God will prepare you for the public moment in your private life. You have to hold true to a relationship with him when nobody's looking so that you're prepared for the moments when the lights are on. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then drop down to verse 41. Goliath walked out towards David with a shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. You know what this was? This was Goliath saying, I don't believe in you either, David. You're not qualified to fight me. You're just a boy. I've been doing this for years. I eat you for an afternoon snack. Do you see where David is? David's in a moment of his life where nobody believes in him but God. Everybody doesn't see his potential except God. Can you believe this? I think you can. Because I think you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you had a dream. And when you started talking about that dream to other people, they just shot you down. So there's no way you're going to be able to do that. You're not qualified to do that. Oh, that's just a pipe dream. That you're never going to achieve that. That's not going to happen. Some of you are so discouraged that you have finally just accepted that this is how life is supposed to be. This is the card that's been dealt to me. I'm just supposed to be normal. Whatever normal is. But I'm here to tell you, I don't care if, if an earthly father has sat there and told you you have no potential. I don't care if you have other brothers and sisters that have told you you don't measure up. I don't care that your own king or your boss or whatever it is says that you don't have any potential. I don't care if it's your enemy that's looking at you that thinks you don't have any potential. God sees potential. God sees a plan. God sees a purpose. God sees a destiny. He wants to revive the dream that has been dead in you for so long because you've allowed words of other people to quench that, to let it die. It's time for God who says, I am the resurrection in the life, to resurrect something inside of you, to resurrect that plan, that purpose, that destiny that is on the inside. He is here to tell you, you might be an underdog today, but guess what? You fight in my name. You fight with my identity that I've given you and see if I will not conquer that which is in front of you. You see, you come at it with David. He replied to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, a javelin. You come to me with saying that I don't have potential. I'm not qualified. I don't measure up. I don't have this. I don't have that. Well, guess what I do have? I come to you in the name of the Lord of the heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
You see, when somebody speaks against you and against your potential, they're defying God because they're defying the identity that He's placed upon you. So you tell them, listen, whom you have defied, today the Lord will conquer you, I will kill you, I will cut off your head, and then I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues His people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. You see, David killed Goliath that day because he was armed with more than a slingshot and five stones. He was armed with the power that comes from knowing God's hand was on him. And the book of Romans tells us in chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, it might say 6, that's the wrong verse. That's the wrong verse in my notes, so I'll take, I'll take the hit on that. But Romans 8, 10 through 11 says, And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. Verse 11 is key. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. And it was with that knowledge that David changed the destiny of a nation. And it began that day when he defeated Goliath. And it would not only change the destiny of that nation, it would change the destiny of this world that we live in. And for the next 40 plus years, now this is, for 40 years, David would lead the nation of Israel in a direction that brought unprecedented blessing and prosperity upon them. Today, my prayer is, is that something would stir on the inside of you that says, I might be an underdog, but today we rise up. Today we take a stand in the power that we know is inside of us being believers in Christ. The time of feeding into the lies that say, I'm not qualified, has gotten to be over today is your day today is the day that you rise up would you stand with me all over this place today